if you were if you were in my house when my children were growing up, it was a frustrating experience to watch TV with dad because as the head of the household responsible for everything in the household like the control for the television <clears throat> watching TV with me was a very frustrating experience I dislike commercials intensely and so the moment a commercial would come on I would flip the channel and my children would be like all up in arms and the moment I didn't like what I was watching I would flip the channel and so there wasn't much that you content wise you would get when you're watching television with me it was more like being on a ride at Disney World and it was just spinning and you could not quite remember where we were uh, but on occasion on occasion, I'd hit a channel and I would pause because something would grab my attention and it would keep me there. And something in Ephesians has grabbed my attention. And so the remote control is out of my hand this morning because I'd like to pause in our series on a specific verse that we only touched on briefly last week. I think I would be remiss to move quickly past this crucial imperative command from Paul and have us miss what I believe he sees as very significant to the church and specifically very significant to Grace Church, to our church. So read with me, if you would, again, Ephesians chapter 5, and let's look at verse 18. Paul writes, And do not be drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence, or like the NASB, which says, out of the fear of Christ. Pray with me, if you would, please. Father, your word is life to us. Your word is truth to us. Your word is power to us. Your word changes us. And this morning, Father, as we humbly and we reverently approach your scriptures, you speaking to us. We ask that those things would happen, that we would begin to be transformed. Lord, give us ears to hear this morning. Give us eyes to see this morning. Give us hearts that are receptive to your voice this morning. Thank you for speaking to us. Thank you for giving us your word that we are not left alone without the voice of God. And Lord, help me once again this morning to represent you well, to serve your church well, to express the love of the shepherd to these dear men and women. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Now, on a side note, before we talk about specifically verse 18, there are few books in Scripture that so clearly teach about the doctrine of the Trinity than the book of Ephesians. Every chapter in this book mentions God the Father, mentions Jesus Christ the Son, mentions the Holy Spirit and the work of the Spirit. And in this passage, we are made aware of what the Spirit is uniquely doing in us and doing what he's doing through us. And understanding the doctrine of the Trinity is a concept that is mind-boggling at best. It's a concept that at oftentimes it's impossible to fully grasp with our human minds. There are many mysteries about the kingdom of God, many things that we just can't explain the infinite with the finite. It's just, it's just impossible. I love an illustration that Mike Bullmore, one of my more favorite teachers, he has a wonderful way of illustrating this truth about the mystery of the Trinity. He asks his congregation to take their, their head in their hands. Just put their, their hands on their head like this. And he says, now what do you think? He says, yeah, for most people, pretty small. <laughs> Not very big. And his question is, do you want a God that can fit into this small area? Do you want a God who is so easily defined and corralled by your understanding? Do you want a God that is small? And the answer is no. No, the God of the Bible is not small. And the God of the Bible is not finite. The God of the Bible is not like us. The God of the Bible is great. And we are not like him. We are not like him. And that's our greatest problem. And it's why we need a savior. So let us understand that as we study this passage this morning, we are speaking about one of the persons in the Trinity. God, the Holy Spirit. And this message that Paul is writing in Ephesians is a message to the church. Being filled with the Spirit not only affects us individually, but it affects us corporately. And being filled with the Spirit determines how the church lives together in Christ, which is the theme of the book of Ephesians. Now, A lot of churches, many churches, have mission statements. Who they are and who God is and what they're going to do. And, and, I, and that's fine. But I regularly pray a mission request. And that mission request is for Grace Church. That we grow as disciples. And we make new disciples. I believe that's, that's the heart that Jesus expresses in Matthew 28. I believe that's the mission of the church. I believe that's what gives life to our church in the activity that we do, that we grow as disciples and we make new disciples. That is the mission request 
for Grace Church. And that only happens as we experience what Paul writes in verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And the language of filling is significant in Ephesians. We see its importance throughout the letter. At the end of the first chapter, we learn about the church as Christ's body. And in, in verse one of chapter, verse 23 of chapter 1, it says, The fullness of Him who fills everything in every way. That is who the church is. In chapter 3, Paul prayed that the Ephesian would know all the dimensions of the love of Christ. And then he says that they may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God in chapter 3. Paul desires that, that we would experience this fullness of who Christ is, of, of who God is. And in chapter 4, we learn that Jesus ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. That is a theme throughout Ephesians. That is an ongoing theme of Paul's that we would experience the fullness of Christ as he is bringing about the plans that he has to unite all things in Jesus Christ. And that uniting of all things is, is us. That uniting of all things are the people of God. It's every person who shows up here. And it's uniting this church together. And in chapter 5, Paul becomes much more specific. No longer should we be influenced and controlled by something other than Christ, which is his reason for using wine here. Let's not be controlled by something else. Let's not be influenced by something else. Let's not be under the influence of wine. Let's not be under the influence of something else. But let's, let's be under the influence. Let's be controlled by Christ. Being filled with His Spirit is life to us. And is designed to be life-giving to this church. And if we are going to be a church that grows as disciples and makes new disciples. If we're going to be a church that lives for the glory of God. It begins right here in verse 18. Be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. Like I said, many churches have a mission statement. I have a mission request. And apart from being filled with the Spirit, what we desire to accomplish as a local church is impossible. It's not possible to do it within our own strength and effort. We do it because God has worked in us and is transforming us and has transformed us. We do this because we are filled with His Spirit. Our mission request is possible. It is possible to grow as disciples. It is possible to make new disciples because God has given us the Holy Spirit. P.T. O'Brien, the commentator, says this. He says, the purpose of this filling speaking of verse 18, is that we are to be transformed by the Spirit into the likeness of God and Christ. 
ideas which are entirely in keeping with many of the earlier passages in Ephesians. Paul's readers are urged. They're urged to let the Spirit change them more and more into the image of God and Christ. Be filled with the Spirit. Paul urges us. Being filled with the Spirit is both our Christian duty and privilege and is necessary for us to live as Christ intended. That's my proposition for you today. Being filled with the Spirit is both our Christian duty and privilege and is necessary for us to live as Christ intended. Now, We'll talk about what it means to be filled with the Spirit in just a moment. In a moment, But first, three points. Who is the Holy Spirit? What does it mean to be filled? And third, a Spirit-filled life. I love Grace Church. And I've got a passion to see Grace Church be more than a group of people who like getting together. And I'm thrilled that we like getting together. That really counts for something. It would be a rather weird Sunday morning if you didn't quite like one another when you walked in here. <laughs> and you're all sitting in seats where there's at least one seat between you and everybody else. No, no, no. I'm glad we love to be together. I'm glad we, we had our men's meeting the other night, our small group men's meeting, and it was just a joy being together. Now, yeah, I brought pizza and it brought the guys in, and, and that works. That works for my group. But you know what? More importantly, we had fellowship. We talked about the Word of God and its application to our lives, and we experienced a growing friendship. But it's more. Grace Church, Grace Church is called to be something. And it's called to do something. It's called to represent Christ in this earth. It's called to help others come to the place where they are transformed by Christ. We are to grow as disciples and we are to make new disciples and we need to be filled with the Spirit. So first, the first thing is, who is the Holy Spirit? Who is the Holy Spirit? Let us have our doctrine right. Let us have a clear understanding of who the Holy Spirit is. The Nicene Creed states that the Holy Spirit is the Lord, the giver of life. So, I mean, the first thing is he's God. He is God. He is a person. He's the per third person of the Trinity. He's one God, three persons, each fully God. That is the Trinity. One God, three persons, each fully God. Now, explain that to somebody. And there isn't a human analogy that works. The water, ice, steam stuff just does not work. Every human analogy we try to, to invade this Trinity doctrine with just falls short. It falls way short. Because it's a mystery. It's infinite in mystery. And, and we just can't explain it. But we have to. We have to accept it. We have to embrace it. We have to love it. We have to see it brought about in our lives. 
And so the first thing that we understand about who is the Holy Spirit is that he is God. He is a person. And he's fully God. He's the God who dwells in us. God has always desired to dwell in his people. God has always desired to to be with his people. As God the Father, he walked in the garden with Adam and Eve. As the Lord, he dwelled with the Israelites in a pillar of fire. As God the Son, he became flesh. Emmanuel, God with us. And as the Holy Spirit, he is the God who lives in us, who dwells in us. He is God. Who is the Holy Spirit? He's God. But he's also, Scripture says, he's the giver of life. It is the Holy Spirit that regenerates us at salvation. The Holy Spirit was the one who was at creation, hovering over the waters as we read in Genesis. It was the Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. Romans 8, the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you. And gives you life. The same spirit that, that raised Jesus from the dead. The power of that spirit that dwells in us will raise our mortal bodies one day. He is the giver of life. He gave breath to Adam. He gave life to Lazarus. And he's raised us from the dead. Do you remember Ephesians 2? And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Who did that? Who made us alive? Well, the Bible teaches it's the Holy Spirit. He's the giver of life. And in chapter 5, we learn that He is the one who fills us, this giver of life. And He is the one who remains with us, this giver of life. And not only is He the giver of life, He's our helper. One of the most glorious and comforting truths about the gospel is that Jesus promised to never leave us. Remember Matthew 28. I will be... I'll always be with you to the very end. But he left, did he not? I will always be with you to the very end. And then they see him ascending to heaven. Now, that's mind-boggling to the, to the disciples. Is the promise broken? Is the promise not fulfilled? No. John 14 rings in their, in their ears, rings in their hearts. Jesus speaking, he said, And I will ask the Father, 
and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. That's the promise fulfilled. He is God. He is the giver of life. And he is our helper. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. Do you, do you get that? Jesus hasn't left. God is with us. God is still with us. He is there. He is here. He's here to comfort us. The Holy Spirit is our comforter. He is here to counsel us. He is our counselor. He is here to convict us. He is here to pray through us. He is here to empower us. He is here to guide us. He is here to teach us. He is most importantly here to glorify Christ through us. For he dwells with you and he will be in you. He desires to glorify Jesus through you by sanctifying you and making you holy. By helping us grow as disciples. That's who the Holy Spirit is. He is God. He's the giver of life. He's the helper. In dark moments of discouragement, the Spirit is with you, giving you grace for help in time of need. You're not alone. When you feel condemned by sin, the Spirit brings to your remembrance that if you confess your sin, He is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Remember, the Holy Spirit is to bring to remembrance all that Christ has said to you. When you're suffering, the Spirit is with you to comfort you in His love. When you don't know what to do, the Spirit is there to guide you. And one day, as we all will when we're dying, I think the Spirit will be there to give us peace and to remind us of the promise of heaven. He is our helper. And He is doing this to help us grow as disciples, to make us more holy, to transform us into the image of Christ, to sanctify us. He is our helper. Philippians 2.13, Paul writes, God is at work in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He is willingly working in us. God takes pleasure at seeing us changed by doing it through His Spirit. That's who the Holy Spirit is. He is God. He's the giver of life. And He is your helper. You are not alone. You are not alone. I remember two serious moments in my, in my life. The first was a number of years ago, when there was a thought that I had cancer. 
and I had to go through a biopsy and a number of tests. And I remember, you know, the middle of the night. Um, those are the worst times when you've got these weighty thoughts on your mind and it's dark and there's just, there's nothing else. There's no sound, you know, except Marilyn sleeping next to me. And, and there's just this sense of aloneness that I felt. And, you know, the, they, they did this biopsy and it was going to be two weeks before the results came back. I could be dead in two weeks. And, and, and yet, you know, I had to wait. And I just remember in the, in the middle of the night, just this, this invading presence of the Holy Spirit basically saying, calm down. And I'm, I'm one of those worst case scenario guys. And it's like, okay, what's the worst that could happen? I could die. All right, that's not so bad. You know, I don't want to leave my wife and my kids behind. But really, I could die. That's the worst that could happen. And there was just comfort from the Holy Spirit. Just a comfort from God's presence. That's who he is. That's who he is. And I would venture that if I hold or interviewed every person in this room, you would have a similar experience of having met God, having met the Holy Spirit, the comforter, the helper, the one who has never left you in one of your darkest moments. And you wake up in the morning and it's light and it's bright and you just think, why, why did I even think like that? But we do. And what is so amazing is that God doesn't become impatient with us. He doesn't shake his head at us. The Holy Spirit just comforts us. Just comes alongside of us. Counsels us in that moment. Convicts us if necessary. Guides us to truth in that moment. He is our helper. That's who the Holy Spirit is. Now, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Because Paul's logic is simple. To be filled with the Spirit is to live in submission to God. You can choose to either be drunk with wine and under its influence and under its control, or you can choose to be under the influence and control of the Holy Spirit. There's, there's, there's only two things that are, can control you, something else or God. And there can be a lot of something else. Paul uses wine here because it does have a, a, an effect upon us. Wine, wine's a depressant. It, it removes the pain of the day. It, it numbs us to the reality of life. The Holy Spirit's just the opposite. He stimulates us. He, he brings life to us. He's the giver of life. And Paul wants us to become submitted to the Holy Spirit. John MacArthur calls it a moment-by-moment submission. A moment-by-moment submission. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. The the Spirit-filled life yields, yields every step to the Spirit of God. The Spirit-filled life yields every step to the Spirit of God. There's an... There's a parallel verse 
in Colossians 3. It's an imperative. This is an Im- imperative verse. It's a, it's a verb. It's a, it's a doing something. Be filled with the Spirit. And the, the, in Colossians 3.16, Paul writes, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. He says, you know, be filled. You know, he doesn't say be filled with the Spirit. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. But then he talks about being being singing songs and psalms and spiritual songs and hymns to one another. It's a parallel verse, but instead of saying be filled with the Spirit, he says, let the word of Christ dwell richly in you. In some sense, the word of Christ and the indwelling Spirit are equal. The word of Christ is the truth of Scripture, and we allow nothing in our lives contrary to Scripture. When Paul speaks about being filled with the Spirit, he's talking about Christ dwelling richly in you, in His Word. Understanding this phrase in, in, in the Greek, I think, will help us understand what it means to submit to the Holy Spirit. There's four, there's four aspects to be filled with the Spirit here in verse 18. And it, one, the first thing, it's called the imperative mood. I love the way these scholars write. I wouldn't have called it, I would just say command. But they call it the imperative mood, which basically means being filled here is not a suggestion. It's not a suggestion. It's an authoritative command that we do not have liberty to ignore. Be filled. What it means to be filled with the Spirit, it means to obey. Obey this command to be filled. It's also in the plural form. The imperative to be filled is, in, is addressed to the entire church. It's addressed, yeah, individually, but it's, it's here. This is a letter to the church at Ephesus. Paul is telling the church, be filled. Be filled. And all these things that preceded that, walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you've received. Paul wants us to be filled. And when he talks about being filled, he's he's not talking about um, an event where you go from special meeting to special meeting, seeking an experience with the Holy Spirit, seeking some special filling. In fact, Scripture never commands us to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, and it never commands us to be indwelled by the Holy Spirit. It tells us to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to go get indwelt. That's only a work of God. That can only be done by God. Here in the plural form, it is experiencing the fullness of Christ for everyone. That there isn't anybody in this room who is exempt from experiencing the filling of the Holy Spirit, being filled with the Spirit. It's a command, it's an imperative, and it's it's plural. It's for everybody in this church. Sec- thirdly, it's a passive, it's in a passive voice. Again, it's not about an event. In other words, this this is written, this be filled in the Greek is written in the passive form. It's something that God does to you. Not something that you go after. Now, that doesn't mitigate our not doing something, which is, and and we'll see that in a minute, but we are to give a place for the Spirit to dwell. A place as we do God's Word. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. 
And I think when we understand the passive, it means that we are submitting ourselves to the Holy Spirit. That's what it means to be passive, to submit ourselves to the Holy Spirit. But it's also, fourthly, it's in the present tense, this this verb to be filled. In the Greek, there's two kind of imperatives, two kind of commands. One is a single action. So when Jesus was in, in Cana, and he was at the wedding. And he said to the, the people, fill the jars with wine. Fill them with water, you know, so they would turn to wine. He said, fill the jars. That was an action, a single event that happened. That's, when, that's the, the, the tense for the Greek there. But here, it's a continuous action. Be filled. Go on being filled. It's not a one-time event like the jars at Cana. It is a continuous being filled. That's what the Spirit does. And that we are... And how, so, so what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? It means to be submitted to Christ. To be submitted to the Word of God. To be submitted to the work of the Spirit. To live in submission to the Holy Spirit. Who is the Holy Spirit? He's God. He's the giver of life. He's our helper. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? It means that we are submitted. We are under the control and influence of the Holy Spirit. Not the control and influence of wine or something else. And thirdly, a Spirit-filled life. What are the characteristic activities of being filled with the Spirit? In other words, how how do we know we're filled with the Spirit? What, What does that look like in the life of a believer? What does it look like when we're together? What does it look like when we're apart individually? What does it look like as you go about your day to be filled with the Spirit? Well, the first thing is, is a turning away from sin. What does Paul say here in verse 18? Don't get drunk with wine. Don't give yourself to something other than God. Don't be ruled by another God. Don't be ruled by an idol. Don't give yourself away. Turning away from sin. Don't get drunk with wine. And Paul says it earlier in in chapter 4. Put off your old self. So first thing, a spiritual life is a turning away from sin. Secondly, it's living in unity with one another. Look at verse 19. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That's... That's Paul speaking to the church. That's a corporate caring for one another. Speaking truth. Speaking the gospel to one another. Singing to one another. And this is what we're doing when we worship together. We're, we're singing songs and hymns to God. Yes, but, but it also works towards one another. And we're caring for one another. There is a, there's a life that, that is lived among us. 
it, it, and, it's, and as you read through Ephesians, if you remember all from chapter 1 all the way through, Paul is talking about the unity of the church, the church being united in Christ and experiencing the fullness of Christ in that unity. And, and here he, he talks about it in a very specific way. What does that unity look like? What does that life in Christ together look like? Well, it looks like this. Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs addressing one another. That's what life looks like. That's what we've experienced in small groups. That's what we experience when we're out to dinner together and we open up our lives and share with one another. A spirit-filled life is a turning away from sin. It's a living in unity. It's worship. Paul goes on in verse 20 to say, or verse 19, and singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. So it is, it's both corporate and it's individual. There's a worship that comes from our heart. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. That we worship. That the Spirit is worshiping through us. Because what is the job of the Holy Spirit? To glorify Christ. That's what, that's what Jesus said. The Holy Spirit comes to glorify me. And so as we sing, as we make melody in our hearts, we're glorifying Christ. And the Spirit is doing it through us. And then... Thankfulness, that's another characteristic. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Giving thanks always and for everything. That's another aspect of our worship. It's another way that the Spirit glorifies Christ in us and through us. Listen, when, when you give on Sunday morning, you are glorifying Christ. Why? Because you're expressing thanks to God for the provision He gave you. You're fulfilling this verse. You're giving thanks always and for everything. And finally, a spirit-filled life is submission to one another in the fear of Christ. Verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence, but it's better read out of fear of out of the fear of Christ. Now, let me let me because there's a reason why I I paused here this week. Next week we're going to be talking about Ephesians 5:22 through 33. Husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives submit to your husbands. If we don't understand being filled with the Spirit, we're going to miss the power of that passage. And in verse 21, when Paul writes submitting to one another in the fear of Christ, he's not talking about mutual submission. That's, that's not the context of the verse. It's actually, in a sense, a topic sentence that 
begins to explain what he's about to talk about in verses 22 through 33, where he's talking about husbands and wives and wives submitting and the church submits itself to Christ. And then he goes on, children submitting to parents, obeying their parents, and moving on to slaves, obeying their earthly masters and submitting. It's about submission. And, the, and when he's talking about submitting to one another in the fear of Christ, it's, it, it would be similar to talking about when we say admonish one another, that admonishing, we just don't walk up to each other and equally admonish one another when we see each other. Hey, Larry, let me admonish you. Great. Well, let me, now let me admonish you. No, 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 no. There, there's a, scripture says admonish the unruly. There's a time when we admonish. And, and this submitting to one another in the fear of Christ, Paul is laying the groundwork be filled with the Spirit so that you can submit to one another in the fear of Christ. And now let me tell you what that looks like specifically in your, in your wife. Husbands and wives, the church and Christ, children and parents, masters and slaves, employers and employees. And he's laying the groundwork. But it all begins in verse 18. Be filled with the Spirit. Listen, in our society, in our day and age today, you talk about wives submitting to husbands. You talk about children submitting to parents. You are treading on ground that gets people foaming at the mouth. They hate the idea. They hate it. It is an anathema to them. But for the church, it's truth. For the church, it's life-giving because it's born out of being filled with the Spirit of God. It's all about submission. That's where this passage is leading. And if we don't understand what it means to be filled with the Spirit. When we get to wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. If we don't understand submission in that regard, and submission to Christ as the head of the church, and submission of parents and children, and submission of employers and leaders and those in authority, if we don't understand that, the church is going to fall apart. And I can say that because I think Scripture makes a case for it. We go in the opposite direction. Because what we do is we do what is right in our own eyes rather than what is right in the eyes of God. So how do we do this? How, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? How do we apply this? How, how do we let this happen? I, I think it's all about posture. I love golf. You know that. And if you don't know that, I'll tell it to you again. I love golf. And one of, and, and, and I, and I've studied, you can ask Marilyn, I get golf magazines. I study the golf swing. I, there's just, and one of the crucial elements in the golf swing is posture. If your posture is bad, your swing stinks. There's nothing you can... A bad posture leads to a bad swing. 
You get somebody who is bent over like this, it ain't going to work. You got you to gotta get them right. And, and that for us is how do we get it right? How do we posture ourselves to be filled with the Spirit? To submit, to, to live in submission to the Spirit. Because that's why Paul says in verse 18, do not be drunk with wine. Don't be submitted to something else. That's where this whole idea on submission actually begins. It begins in verse 18, not in verse 21. Don't be submitted to something else. Be, be filled, be submitted to the Spirit. Well, let me give you what I believe Paul instructs us what it means to be filled with the Spirit, how we are to be filled with the Spirit. Number one, uh, walk in a manner worthy of the calling you've received. Ephesians 4, 1. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling you've received. That's submission to God. That's submission to the Word of Christ. Walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Paul doesn't stop there. In Ephesians 4, he goes on. He says, no longer walk as the Gentiles do. What did you used to do? What, what, who were you prior to Christ? How did you walk prior to Christ? Stop. Don't do that anymore. That's not submission. But he goes on even further. In Ephesians 4, he says in verse 30, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. What is it that you might be doing that is grieving to the Holy Spirit? could be a number of things. It could be many things. You know. Because the Spirit dwells in you. And He convicts you. And He is speaking to you. So what is He saying? Then He goes on in 5.1 How do we posture ourselves? Be imitators of God. Don't just walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Imitate God. Imitate God. And he tells us how to do that. What does he say? Well, he says it in, in 5.2. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. That's how we apply this. We walk in love as Christ loved us. We, there's the gospel. There's the gospel. You want to know where this imperative, this command is tied to the gospel? Right here. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Walk like that. Be a fragrant offering and be a life willing to sacrifice for God. That we might grow as disciples and that we might make new disciples. Oh, let that be grace, church.